Well, good morning. Hopefully, and Lord willing, next week, I won't be up here with the scooter. You'll miss that, won't you? Somebody suggested this morning I get a, a cape so that it, you, you got the idea. I want to thank the Lord publicly, praise him for the gift of a godly wife. Today is our 23rd anniversary, and it has been a joy to serve by her side uh, in three different countries now. And big year for our family, but very thankful for the gift of a godly wife. And it is a gift and one that I'm undeserving of, but one I want to publicly praise the Lord for. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. morning, try to rethink your morning. What were your thoughts about Christ's bride? That's what the scripture calls the church, his bride. What were your thoughts about her this morning? What were your words about her this morning? What were your affections about her this morning? And have we entered in here to worship and give or have we entered in here as critics to sort of condescend towards the bride because she's not what we would prefer and when you open up revelation you have the lord the true owner of the churches writing messages to the churches it would be sobering i think if i brought in here this morning a letter sealed And said, this is the message of the exalted Christ to Highlands Baptist Church. And in it, he's going to state our strengths and our weaknesses. And for the weaknesses, he's going to call us to repent. For our strengths, he's going to affirm us. And as I begin to open that sealed letter, what would your emotional condition be? I would be fearful, excited, and wondering. As he walks amidst this lampstand and holds the stars closely in his hand, true ownership, true lordship, and he is about to evaluate us because he's been walking here all along, what would he say about us? And really, in truth, we have what he would say in the seven churches to Asia. Last week to the church of Ephesus, they were doing some things really well. They were testing those who said they are apostles, but they're not. Jesus says, well done on that. But I have something against you. You have a loveless orthodoxy. You have right teaching without right practice. You have a rigid and cold zeal for truth. But you don't love God and you don't love others. You say, well, how serious is that? I mean, we're doing everything right. We have a good doctrinal statement. We don't allow false teachers to join this church. Right? Membership does matter. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Jesus is going to say this. Repent. And if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. That's how serious it is, folks. If we have right doctrine, but not right practice, if we have truth, but without love for God and others, 
God says he doesn't even want us to shine in the community because it's not an accurate light. And the message to Ephesus is a message to Highlands. The message to Smyrna is also a message to Highlands, though it's going to be hidden because the experience isn't as similar. Revelation 1, verse 3. Look back at that. I'll probably look at this for each of the seven letters. But this provides an interpretive key to the entire book. Right? The point of prophecy is not simply to satisfy curiosity. It is to fuel faith and provide incentive for obedience. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Okay, we read a section out loud this morning together. And blessed are those who hear. And that's an active listening. It's not just a sound washing over our dull eardrums, but it is actually a hearing with the sense that it sinks down and seeps into our heart and it affects our will. And here's the interpretive key who keep what is written in it. There are so many treatments, so many books on Revelation that by the time you get done reading it, there's no way you can obey it because it is a an over hyper improbable interpretation with date setting. Do you know Revelation is intended to be obeyed? All of it. That's the interpretive key. Here's the motivational purpose. Very last five words of chapter one, verse three, for the time is near. Revelation is to be obeyed and we must read it in that way. And revelation is to be obeyed because the time is near. Here's the here's really the proposition this morning. Revelation and the message to the church in Smyrna particularly invites us to follow the lamb with a fearless and faithful witness to the world. Here's the outline. Most of our young people, you can get this, okay? We're just going to use the, the Roman numerals, and, and then you can fill it out. So, really, really quick snapshot. Roman numeral one, it just looks like a capital I with a dot. Introduction. Okay, Roman numeral one, if you're taking notes. Roman numeral two, looks like two capital I's with a dot. Body of letter. So that's what this is, it's a letter. Roman numeral three, three capital I's with a dot. Conclusion. Now, let's fill that out a little more. Roman numeral one, introduction, A, the address to the church. You're going to see this in every letter. To the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, to the church in Philadelphia. That's the address to the church in Centennial. We won't see that one in Revelation 2 and 3, but by application you will. And then introduction, A, address to the church, B, character of Christ. This is an interesting feature because with every letter, it highlights a certain aspect of Christ's character. We're going to look at that. Okay, Roman numeral two, body of letter. A, strengths and or weaknesses. Only two churches do not have weaknesses called out. What's really interesting is they are the seemingly most insignificant and smallest churches. B, the solution, see the warning. Roman numeral three, conclusion. There's always going to be letter A, a call to listen. Letter B, a challenge to overcome. Okay, that's what your outline should look like. And hopefully 
I will follow that this morning. Here's the introduction. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Okay, it's identified this church body, a real congregation, a real gathering of believers in this city that is 35 miles north of Ephesus. Interestingly enough, it is in modern day Turkey. And in nearly 2000 years, it doesn't seem like this area of the world has changed its stance concerning Jesus Christ and his followers. Both were built on the Aegean coast of modern Turkey. It would have been the second city that a courier would have taken a letter to. Matter of fact, you're going to see all that with all seven. It's going to follow the route of this letter deliverer, sort of the postman. And he's going to be delivering these letters around that way. So Ephesus, then Smyrna, which is modern day Izmir. Its architecture made this city, Smyrna, the envy of Asia. You ever been to a place like that? I feel that a little bit when we go up to Breckenridge and you've got the nice walking bridges over the stream and cute shops and a French cafe, which kind of pulls you in, really pulls me in. They're called benets with custard. So you've got all these aromas and you've got the architecture and you've got this beautiful setting of the mountains and you've got things to do. That's Smyrna. They had beautiful temples, all connected by a mall, a group of buildings called the Crown of Smyrna, an Acropolis on Mount Pagos, an incredible roadway called, get this, the Street of Gold. And it attracted a population of 100,000 people, which was a large city in this day. Smyrna was known particularly for its loyalty to Rome. They had a prosperous imperial cult. It was the first city. They called themselves this, the first in Asia. If you just look at secular history on the city of Smyrna, it'll typically include that. They called themselves the first in Asia. They were the first city in Asia to build a temple to the goddess Roma. In 26 AD, they beat out other cities to be able to be the first to build a temple to the Roman emperor Tiberius. And in A.D. 155 to 56, the famous elder bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, was burned alive for refusing to reject Christ by calling Caesar Lord. Their loyalty to Rome is impeccable. Now, look what it says. With that in mind, look at the second part of verse one. This is the character to Christ. This would be letter B on your outline. The words of the what? First and the last. First in Asia now confronts the first eternally, globally, cosmically. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is the specific character of Christ that is highlighted to this church. And we're going to see why that particular character is highlighted for example, the church that had grown cold and rigid, this is, this is the character part of Christ that's highlighted, who holds the messengers in his right hand, who walks among the churches. The church at Ephesus didn't need any more entanglements. They didn't need an attractional program. 
They needed to submit to the ownership of Jesus Christ first. He holds them. He walks among them. And they needed to be reminded that he was not okay with loveless orthodoxy. Because he's in their midst. And he knows them. Well, now he knows the church of Smyrna. And Jesus is described as the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, why would that be important to this church? To a city who smugly calls itself first in Asia and worships Rome. It'd be important for this church because they are suffering. They are being slandered. And it's about to get worse. For 10 days, it's about to get severe. Their near future is uncertain. Their ultimate future is not. Why? Because the one who walks in their midst and knows them is he who died. Listen, he's, he's done that and came to life. Here's the body of the letter, Roman numeral two. Strengths and or weaknesses. You're only going to find strengths. Let's read this again. Verses nine to ten. And I love this. Every letter I know. Do you know Jesus knows us this morning? He knows us as individual members. You walk in here with pain. Guess who knows that? Maybe hit it from everybody else, which is okay at times. And it's okay to smile and say you're doing well, even though you're hurting. But Jesus knows. Are you being slandered in the community? Jesus knows. Are you suffering? Lonely? Jaded? Discouraged? Questioning God? Questioning Christianity? Questioning His love? Jesus knows. He intimately knows this church. I know, and there's going to be three things Jesus says He knows. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty... But you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The three things the exalted Christ knows about the church in Smyrna is this. Did you see it? What's the first one? He knows about their tribulation. He knows about their poverty. But then he knows that what they might not have evaluated it as. He says this, but you are rich. How is poverty riches? What's the third thing he knows? This one kind of catches you off guard. This is like the O of the text. He knows about slander. Do you know today these would never be considered strengths in a church? If you embrace a biblical philosophy or I would say an unbiblical philosophy of ministry that is simply an attractional church, right? Disney level children's programs, tribulation, poverty and slander are not on your list. These are the things that would immediately be identified and pushed out so that we could see church growth. And this becomes very important because Jesus' idea of strength and health and growth is almost diametrically opposed to what we hear 
estimate as church growth. Where every loss is a weakness and every gain is a strength, Jesus doesn't see it that way. Matter of fact, it's Jesus Christ who comes in and prunes the vine. And in some cases with Israel, he laid it so bare they thought the root would die. But Jesus knew that he had to prune it so far back so that it could actually bring forth growth that glorifies God. Do you know he does that with churches too? And sometimes he uses tribulation and poverty and slander. I think we, myself included, have forgotten something very important. And that is the centrality of and the sanctifying blessedness of suffering for Christ. Tribulation, the word used here is affliction. When it talks about the great tribulation, it is a great affliction. That word identifies the basic problem. And the following two words, poverty and slander, are aspects or particulars or results of the main problem, which is tribulation or affliction. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also... You know the next word? Have your best life now. That's not what Philippians 129 says. But also prosper materially. That's not what God's word says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's what God's word says. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, right? To which we say, yes, and may share his sufferings. No. Yes, because Paul goes on to say, becoming like him in his death. Poverty has often been the situation of God's people because those who love darkness hate the children of light and seek to do them harm. Let me read you an extended passage uh, in John where he records the words of Jesus. Let's just listen to this. I'll give you the reference at the end. If the world hates you, Jesus says, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I have said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. John chapter 15, 18 to 20, and John chapter 16, 1 to 4. And that's exactly what these people are doing in the community. This synagogue, this gathering, this congregation. The next word is poverty. It moves from tribulation to poverty. 
And Jesus knows about what may have been the cause for the Smenerian Christians' poverty. It's Jewish and pagan hatred that may have resulted in loss of property, possessions, loss of jobs, loss of job promotions, and imprisonment. But I love what Jesus says, but you are rich. How would you explain that to somebody who like picked up this message? How would you explain that kind of poverty as they face death? How would you explain that as riches? Listen to this verse out of Hebrews 10. For you had compassion on those in prison. That's what the Smenarians are facing. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Wait, 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 wait. Go back. Okay, listen to that. You had compassion on those in prison, and you, who weren't imprisoned, accepted the plundering of your property. I missed a word. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How? You go home today, and because you're a Christian, they, they with governmental permission, ransacked your house and took all your valuables. You can joyfully accept that because this is what God's word says. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, the letter to the Hebrews, the people that were receiving that message, the people that he was talking about, didn't just intellectually acknowledge Jesus teaching, but they accepted Jesus teaching when he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He goes from tribulation to one of the results of the particulars, poverty, and he goes to probably the cause of the tribulation and the poverty, and that's the third word, letter C, slander. Here's what becomes very encouraging. Jesus knows the truth about the slander of those who say things that are not true. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. Look at the next sort of description. Who say that they are Jews and are not. Who is this group? Well, they're Jews. It could be some pagan people in what is modern day Izmir, but it is Jews. So why that description? If they are true Jews, if they are by nature true children of Abraham, they would believe in God and love him. And as proof of that love, they would love who? They would love other people. Who say that they are Jews. We are culturally Jews. We are by birth Jews. But you are not by nature children of Abraham. They profess to be the people of God. But they have become tools in Satan's hands. 
who say that they are Jews. And look at this next description, a fierce description, a synagogue of Satan. You know, Jesus has used language like this with the Jews before. He says this in John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil. No, 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 no. Our, remember what they just said? Our father is who? Our father's. Our father is Abraham. No, no. Let's look at your nature. Let's let's put all the externals aside. When I see your heart, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So instead of being a true gathering of God's people, true Jews, they are a gathering, a congregation, a collection of satanic instruments. A synagogue of Satan. The term Satan simply means adversary, opponent, or enemy. What is the proof that they are a synagogue of Satan? What is the proof that they have become one with Satan? Their father, the devil. A gathering together for satanic purposes. What's the proof? What's the evidence? Not tribulation, that's the main problem. Not poverty, that's a result. What's the evidence they are a congregation of Satanists? (laughs) They're slandering God's people. Do you realize when Jesus Christ walks among his church and he knows us, how serious a threat it is to him when people slander his children? And now it's not just unbelieving Jews or pagan Smenarians. It's professing Christians who do this. Religious gatherings opposed to God, his son, Jesus, the Holy Spirit and his true people, the church are satanic. Even though they meet in beautifully ornate religious buildings and wear religious robes, they are synagogues of Satan. That's what the text says. Let me make it clearer, though. They are chapels of Satan. Temples of Satan, monasteries of Satan. Mosques of Satan, shrines of Satan, pagodas of Satan, churches of Satan. When there is oppression and slander upon God's true children, they have become one with their father, the devil, Satan. Very strong. And what's beautiful in all that is Jesus walks among them and he sees the suffering and he sees the poverty and he says, I know this. I know this. So this is kind of building us up to his challenge, his exhortation. So what is, in the midst of satanic opposition, what is the church called to be? What are you and I called to be? Fearless and faithful witnesses. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. This is emphatic. Don't be afraid of anyone. Jesus walks amidst this lampstand, which to the world seems dim, but out of all the churches is probably the brightest. And he says, don't be afraid of anyone. See, Jesus isn't going to remove the persecution. He's not going to remove the tribulation right now. He's not going to keep them from being imprisoned. And probably one of the reasons for Roman imprisonment is execution. 
He's not even going to deliver them from that death. So he comes to this church and he says, don't be afraid of anyone. That's what he said in Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Revelation is a call to faithfulness. So, blessed are those who read this aloud, who hear, and who what? Who keep it, obey it. Here's what we obey. A perseverance and faith in God amidst difficulty. Let me read a few verses. Revelation 13.10. Just write down the references. I'll read these quickly. Listen to what Revelation says in in a few chapters later. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. See, it is a call to faithful perseverance in God. Revelation 14, 11 to 12, very fearful description. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Revelation seventeen fourteen. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. True believers persevere to the end by faith in God. Look at verse 10. Behold, I mean, why, why such a call to faithfulness? Why such a call to faithful witness in the face of death? Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. John uses that word behold 26 times in Revelation. And it always highlights like a specific urgent need, especially in the letters to the churches. Here, it focuses on this crucial point, the extent of the suffering. It's imminent. The devil is about to do this. Who's testing who here? The construction of the Greeks seems to imply it is Satan, the devil who is testing. There may also be a secondary application, of course, with God's sovereignty. The devil can do nothing without God's permission. I hope we understand that. It's not two equal forces fighting until the end to find out who wins. It was God who gave Satan permission to tempt Job. But it was God who also tested Abraham for success with his son. Satan's purpose is always towards destruction, always towards apostasy, always towards unbelief. Jesus wrote earlier to keep you from falling away. Satan's intent is to get you to move away. God's purpose is to test towards success. It's positive. Well, if the devil is testing here, which seems to be what the text implies, how will he do it? For 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now, is that literal or figurative? Well, in a book where figurative language and symbolism and numbers is used, it is difficult to be exact. 
It does refer, here's what we can conclude. It refers to a limited but quite severe duration of time. It could refer to 10 days of gladiatorial games that the Romans were popular for. It could refer to 10 days in a real prison and after that execution. It could refer to a unknown but definite severe limited time used by a small round number 10. And the text doesn't give us any clues. But here's what we do know. 1 Corinthians 10:13. No temptation, no trial has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he says to them, you're going to be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, what is the weakness? I mean, if there's a strength highlighted, what is the weakness? And I want to circle back to this. There is no weakness highlighted for the Seminarian believers. The most significant, the least significant in terms of numbers and seeming influence were Smyrna and Philadelphia. The current trend of the modern megachurch is on size, grandeur, musical production, programs, and facilities, and all that needs to be reexamined by the way that Jesus Christ interacts with the church of Smyrna. Prosperity gospel proponents would call out and rebuke the church of Smyrna for their lack of faith. The reason you're suffering is because you don't have enough faith. Because they assume poverty and tribulation only comes to those who are not walking with God, who don't have enough faith to believe. The church of Smyrna flies in the face of that false teaching. What happens to a lot of Convenience-driven churches, attractional campuses, and this isn't throwing rocks at all of them. There are some very effective, larger ministries. It surprises us, and Ethan even mentioned it this week, we are still considered by the numbers here this morning to be a large church in America. It surprises a lot of people because we forget about the rural component in a lot of the smaller gospel-centered, Christ-centered churches. We're actually a larger church on the scales, but the typical thing is we always look to bigger, right? Bigger and what we think is better. But what happens with a lot of them, not all of them, with the megachurches and the campuses and the attractional programs is their structures conform to people's other first loves. So if you cannot worship on the Lord's day, we will provide other opportunities for you so you can meet your first loves on the Lord's day. And that's a danger when we start falling into that, because then we start to say the church is not meeting my needs, me, my needs here. It's not it's not allowing for me to live out my other first loves. This is an inconvenience. And I can go seven miles down the road and have my needs met better. And that is absent in Smyrna. One blessing of a suffering church is that it's usually made up of truly regenerate, truly born again people. People aren't clamoring to join a suffering church. But do you know what suffering people do? 
Suffering churches desire to be together because they need each other. Suffering churches pray together. Suffering people want to hear from God's word. They don't just want a business motivational speech. They don't just want a three-step process on how to live a better life. They want to hear from God's word. They want you to go line by line by what has he said. Suffering people don't typically complain about what they didn't get from the Sunday gathering. Because they're suffering. And so there is no weakness highlighted in this church because suffering sanctifies a church. Pain purifies a church. And it pushes out all the secondary and the nursery school-like problems and hurts and offenses because we realize our unity is in Christ. And we're facing near death. But there is one who died and who lives again. I had the privilege of meeting with converted Muslims in Ethiopia towards the border of Somalia. Our driver, a national man, got very concerned when a white SUV sped up and got right behind our tail. He made a phone call. He slowed down to see if that truck would slow down as well. And he went and he passed us. And so we felt like we were in the clear. We drove about another hour towards the Somalia border. And we pulled into a gated compound. And they noticed us in the back. And you could see some of the looks and then chattering to one another. And we pulled into this gated compound. And when we went into the building, stone Poor-looking building, no toilet facilities that I can remember of, broken glass, bars on the window. And what we found in there was the room had been encircled with some of these Ethiopian converts. We distributed Bibles to them. We prayed with them. They prayed with us. They sang with a full heart, without instrumentation, their prayers, there was an earnestness to their prayers and a seriousness. They were, not, they were not sensing the fear we sensed. There was no sense of distraction or hurriedness to get to lunch or the golf course or to the mountains. And Ethiopia has beautiful mountains. And they just wanted to linger there. And what they did is when they were in their villages, they were convert, converted to Christianity, some through seeming miraculous ways. And rather than come out, some of them were clerics and imams. And rather than come out and avoid that persecution, they chose to stay in. Now, they were no longer getting money funded to them from Saudi Arabia and Iran. They lost their paycheck and they were being persecuted and they were ready to take these Bibles and go back to the villages and raise chickens and garden and preach Christ. And we were told that many of them in that room knew that they were facing death. Now, I am not suggesting we need to be unthankful for our culture and the peace and comfort we enjoy. But our task is to nurture a zeal for Christ amidst a culture that promotes softness. And a critical spirit. Softness of Christian discipleship. Theological laziness. Lack of commitment in service. Blindness to our brothers and sisters in the world who are suffering. Listen to Hebrews 13.3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated 
since you also are in the body. What's the solution? Look at the latter part of verse 10. He doesn't say, I'm going to swoop in and take you out of here. He says, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Faith is how we persevere. Faith in the object of Christ, who is a suffering Savior, sent to die for us so that we could have life, is how we persevere. Faith that the God of history, the sovereign Lord of the earth, will ultimately vindicate those who have suffered and reward them. In the Gospels, discipleship is defined by a willingness to die. This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. This isn't just a metaphor. He's saying to follow me, you must be willing to follow me to death. And here's the incentive. And I will give you the crown of life. Most likely the victor's crown, Smyrna, was known for its games. It wasn't something of value, but it was a symbol of having conquered, of having persevered. We understand the wording, I will give you the gold medal of overcoming. The warning, there is no warning because there is no weakness. The conclusion, look at verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the challenge to overcome, or what we've called the eschatological promise, this promise that's in the future. The one who conquers will not be hurt by what? He doesn't say, I'm going to deliver you from the first death, but he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by what? The second death. Hebrews 9.27 says this, just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after this comes the judgment. Here's the truth, and this is in conclusion of everyone in this room. Everyone in here has been born once. Most of us, I believe, have been born twice. Born again, right? John chapter 3. But if you've only been born once, you will die once. Even those of us who have been born twice will die once. But if you have only been born once and you enter into eternity, you will die once and enter into eternity and you will die a second time eternally. Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. Revelation 20:14. then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 21, 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So what is our hope? Our hope is there is one who died and lives. Go back to the beginning of this message. The Smenarian's fate was uncertain and dim. But their eternal fate was not. It's secure. Right? We sang, he will hold me fast. Christ will bring life out of death. Therefore, God's people are called to a fearless and faithful witness to the world. May God help us do this. Let's pray.